Sonic Statesman.com. We're all here, and today is the 7th of November. We're recording today, going live on the 8th of November. That is right, isn't it? Yeah, 8th of November. We've just had um, bonfire night in the UK, and there's still lots of fireworks going off. My cat is spending all her time under the sofa, cowering. Now, first of all, we have Mr. Dave Spears from G4Software.com, the new revamped G4Software.com. Yay! Mr. Dave Spears had actually just um, released their virtual string machine, which is a killer um, string sample-based playback synthesizer type of thing, which has got every single possible string synth of all time on it. It's absolutely brilliant. And he's got a brilliant new website. Thank you. Yep. I'm very, very, very happy today. The guy who designed it is is a listener to the podcast. How strange is that? Yeah, and he's brilliant. And I have to say thank you, thank you, and thank you. Well, I'll second that. It looks really good if you're listening. Good work. G4software.com. And then, of course, Mr. Mark Tinley, who uh, we're experimenting this week. We're, um, we're working on, um, on how to keep a child occupied when they're not asleep, are we, Mark, this week? We are indeed. He's watching In the Night Garden, which is the weirdest television program I've ever seen. And it's, it's, I think it's made by the same people that make Teletubbies. Yeah, that's right. They must have taken more acid to make this program because it's so out there. <laughs> Do you mean folic acid? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know how they've done it though. They have they've tailored this program so to his two year old imagination that he just the moment you put it on, he just sits and disappears into his own sort of little I'm watching T V world with this ridiculous grin on his face and as the characters come on he's just so so taken by them all. I Enraptured. Just... When it comes to later life and he's seeking therapy and redress for all of these uh these times that you've been Stuffing in front of a telly as a proxy parent. I, I just like to have a disclaimer at this point that we're in no way responsible. Okay, <laughs> but I do appreciate it. <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to know our television doesn't actually connect itself to any terrestrial channels, and we only put select DVDs on for our son. Oh, and wow, he doesn't watch. Good. He doesn't watch them very often, and he doesn't watch very much. So, oh, wow, well, good is, for uh, you. This is definitely a one-off. And Mark, um, thank you very much for trying this new social experiment to, to, to keep you with us for longer we very much appreciate it and um also this week we have mr non-eric from um, berlin hello welcome everyone hello how are you doing i'm fine and i'm eagerly awaiting the string machine it's gone it's gone oh great can i have one as well <laughs> of course of course and, that, and i can already announce that of course there will be a, a video podcast on my german language www.musotalk.de on the string machine as soon as it as the package arrives in germany Yay. That's, a pro- that's a promise. <laughs> that's musotalk.de, folks, for um, non-Eric's uh, excellent video podcasts and other content. Check it out. Yep. And of course, uh, Mr. Richard Hilton from Connecticut, who uh, you're resting up with a bit of a, with a bit of a dodgy knee. Is that right? Well, yeah, but I'll uh, still be looking forward to my forthcoming birthday copy of the virtual string machine as tomorrow is my birthday hey! Hey! happy hey! birthday rich you, what does that make you a libran or I can't. scorpio 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 yeah there you go scorpio. i'd just like to say i don't actually know anything about it apart from i know that i'm a libra but that's it i don't think that and means you are not tightly wound <laughs> no i can't imagine anyone less tightly wound up but i hope your bandages that's a terrible link but that's the best i could do <laughs> <laughs> The first topic that I found on VintageSynth.org, which is uh, a great resource for um, synthesizers. I think they're sort of winding down the kind of content provision, but they're keeping the forums going. And there was a, there was a when was your first synth? And I thought we could expand on that and sort of when and what was your first synth? Um, and I thought we could maybe have a trip down memory lane. So I could insert some sort of some of those uh, wind chimes and we can um, maybe have some appropriate stuff in the background. But uh, I'll, I'll have to do that in post, obviously. So who'd like to go first? Who, was, who can remember what their first synth was and roughly when it was? Cog MS-20, yeah. Didn't, didn't you feel like starting with the MS-10 first, or was it just what was available? I think it was uh, basically what there was. I think there was a very few choices at the time. If we would have known that at the same time, more or less, the Wasp plus the Spider would have been available, that might have been an option. But we were actually looking for something uh, that goes with the sequencer. Okay. And we were we were doing you know like uh, we actually did a record with 
two records with it. One actually recorded in London, and we used the uh, the SQ10 sequencer. Ah, uh, yes. And, and added some electronic drums and stuff to that. So it was basically very important uh, to be able to have a sequencer. But we we were not actually because of the the as as you all know, the MS20 is very hard to get a straight regular melody out of an MS-20 plus an SQ-10. It's virtually impossible. <laughs> but we used it very much for these uh, atonal um, sequences that were really popular in the new wave and punk sound of the 80s in Germany. 80, yes, 1980, 81, something like that. So that's 20, more than 25 years ago. It's funny when you think about it like that. It doesn't, it doesn't seem possible, does it? The, the, youthful, <laughs> the youthful chap that you are, I can't imagine that you could barely reach the keys by that, at that age. <laughs> Mark Tinley, are you kind of? Do you have any distant and fond memories of? Oh yeah, mine was in about 1979, I think. I was probably about 15 or 16, and I had this pal at school called Scott Brynan, and uh, we both opted to do the electronics option of the physics O level, and we had to tutor ourselves because the physics tutor knew absolutely nothing about it. So Scott actually built my first synthesizer for me out of breadboard and capacitors and transistors and all sorts of weird stuff. And it was, it was basically a box that looked sort of like a radio with loads of knobs on the front. And then you could, you could sort of set pitches and frequencies and resonance and stuff on with the knobs. And then it had a, a keypad, which he made, which was like a stylophone. It looked like a stylophone, except I think it was touch sensitive. So, but he'd he'd etched this out of um, you know copper PCB uh, yeah. PCB using using acid or whatever, and then um, and kind of covered it in you know tinned it with solder or whatever. So that Good was Lord. my first one. Did it have a name? I don't. Well, if it did, I can't remember what it was. But it, it was a really weird thing, and trying to get the thing to even play even vaguely in tune at all was just virtually impossible. But I hope you passed your physics make- exam. Uh, I, yeah, well, I passed it more than I passed some of the other ones, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> so I, did, I got a grade, which right. is more than I got in English. I remember, hey. I remember seeing one of those kits, actually. This was when, I think it was probably Electronics and Music Maker. Um, they used to have kits on the front, and I just remember there was one that had, it had buttons as a keyboard, but instead of a keyboard, the, the buttons were kind of like the ones that you get on the old Space Invader machines, and there was just an octave of them. And I just, I wanted one of those things more than anything in the world, and I never could um, kind of find a way to get all the bits together because I had no clue about how to make stuff. But uh, I, well, well, that, I digress. So, Dave Spears, let's let's hear your first first what and when. Oh, I've never owned a synth. No, that's a complete <laughs> lie. <life. laughs> <laughs> God, an SH one thousand in about nineteen seventy seven. Woo, that's scary. Um, but I didn't own it. It was uh, hired in for a gig that I did because obviously then everybody wanted a synthesizer and miking up a grand piano was a complete nightmare. So, um, but it ended in disaster, which was fantastic because we spent ages and ages tuning it with a little screwdriver pot in the back. And then for a laugh, a mate walked up before the gig and just put his thumbnail in it and turned it. So actually, when it came uh, to playing the bloody thing, it was hideously out of tune. So in the end, I think we substituted it for a stylophone through <laughs> an amp. Oh, <laughs> and bluffed our way through the The audience scheme. were very lucky that night, weren't they? Uh, they had no idea what was going on. Right. Thankfully. So no, a, but a, th- a Roland SH-1000. Yeah, I think that was Roland's first ever non, well, semi-preset, non-preset thingy. Okay. Very strange. strange. Was it in a suitcase? Did it have a, a sort of a suitcase lid to it? Uh, no, that was the 3A, or the, the SH3, which actually we only recently got rid of. But um, They're very valuable, aren't they? The 3s and the 3As? Or was that the 5? Uh, 3s, yeah, they're kind of interesting. There's a load of rumour about, you know, the first ones having a Moog infringing filter and all that kind of stuff and fetching an absurd amount of money, which I think was complete nonsense. Uh, in fact, funnily enough, the person who bought the 3A was Mr Gregory. Ah, yeah, I think he's, I've seen it. Music shops used to have them and hire them, didn't they? Because I actually, I remember my first hire uh, was a Korg Micro preset. And wow. I used to play, because we were really into The Cure back then, you know, The Forest. And mm. uh, and that was my first, and that's what I used to play with, with it as well. 
which is uh, going going in a slightly different direction. But uh, um, yeah, cool, Mike. Appreciate it. Rich Hilton. How about yourself? Are you early to synthesizers, or is that something that's happened later in life? Uh, my first contact with a synthesizer was in 1972. Whoa! Whoa. Wow! Um, and funnily enough, it was a model made in Connecticut uh, by a company called uh, Electronic Music Laboratories, and it was an EML 101, mm. which was uh, kind of purported to be. Boy, there's some pops for you. It was purported to be uh, sort of a mini Moog on steroids, insofar as it had patch points as well, and so the friend of mine who acquired this thing somehow while we were in high school um he was very uh, keen on the whole idea of the patch points and trying and explaining things to me about the different sections of the synthesizer and such and i i remember it very very well and then my next experience was in uh 1975 where i got i believe it was 75 or 76 where a micro moog showed up uh on campus where i was going to school at a friend's house at a friend's room and i spent quite a bit of time on that so those would be the earliest for me. Was that the one which was kind of, it was flat and it had a molded kind of plastic fascia and it did it have a, a ribbon controller, the micro? It had a ribbon controller. It was a single oscillator synthesizer with uh, some really, it just was a fantastic instrument actually. And uh, the first synth I ever owned was its kind of big brother, the two oscillator version, which was called the Multimog. Oh, fantastic. And I still have that as well as an MS-20. Oh, really? Well, I, I have an MS-20 now, but I didn't get one for a long time. My first owned synth was an MS-10. I remember when I got it home and I just was so disappointed because it sounded nothing like I thought a synthesizer would and I couldn't get it to make any noise and I didn't realise it hadn't come with enough jack leads to kind of do anything useful. And it was, it was a most disappointing experience all round, really. I, and then I went on to a Jupiter 4, which was oh, less disappointing. Great. That's I like Jupiter 4s. Yeah, they're really nice. Um, but that had a real tuning problem. I remember having to... I remember the the guy at my local repair shop, uh, Mark White, he's called. I don't suppose he's listening, but uh, he was very helpful. He actually soldered a load of heat sinks onto that so that the, the temperature would stabilise a bit more so they wouldn't drift out so much. And he showed me how to, uh, how to tune them. There's four tuning pots on the back, aren't there? One yeah. for each oscillator. That's there. right, yeah. I've been uh, reading about this band called Silver Apples. Yes, sixties, fantastic. This guy with his mega, mega homemade thing. Were they a sort of psychedelic kind of outfit? Yeah, yeah, very, very. I'd not really uh, heard anything about them, but um, my neighbour lent me this really interesting book. No, it's some really fascinating stuff in there. Oh, we'll have to send us a link for that because we'll um, put it in the show notes. And I do recall that I do recall the kits made by PAIA, however you pronounce that. Um, here, here in America, and some buddies of mine in school, uh, back in high school, also had uh, one of my buddies had a pretty good sized one of those that he had built, and uh, I encountered another one. I don't know, five or six years later as well. They they apparently sold a few of those. Unfortunately, I believe the gentleman who founded the company, uh, John Simonton, passed away a few years ago. Right. And uh, the stuff, if it is, if there is anything left of PAIA, it's being run by somebody else, obviously. They had a really interesting synth called Proteus, strangely enough. The only th- things I can really remember are the Maplin things. Oh, yeah. And then the, the, uh, the magazine was Electronics. A music maker. A music maker. Yeah. And then, but Roland also had a whole series of kit foot pedals and uh, oh, yeah. some kind of drum synthesizers. Were they called Amtech? Amtech, Amtech yeah. yeah. And it was, it was the, you could buy like the Boss Flanger, but as a kit for like several pounds less and then you had hmm. to bolt it all together or something but it wasn't really a kit in as much as like you had to solder every single thing was it i don't think you just snap it together some, and some of it was pre-built wasn't it this first thing that i really bought was a um called poly 61 the last synthesizer without midi is that right Talking about last synthesizer, shouldn't we also have a last synthesizer conversation? Because <laughs> I, have, I haven't actually bought a synth for maybe uh, six, seven years. Ooh, it was probably the either the JV1080 or it was a Jupiter 6, but I traded that, so it doesn't quite count. Well, I bought it. I think the last one I bought was the Nord Modular. Uh, yep, okay. that was mine. That was mine as well. Ah, Dave, what was the last one you bought? Must have been yet yesterday. No, although I'm looking at the uh, Vimeo auctions. Oh, don't, don't. You know pretty, you shouldn't. Pretty soon. Oh, are they on at the moment? Uh, yeah. They, uh, shouldn't wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> there's a Yamaha GX1 there, which um, 
used to belong to Mickey Most, and I think the res- I think the initial bid is fourteen thousand quid. Mm. So I was saying to Chris, "Come on, come on." I'd, I'd just like to see the missus face, you know, when I kind of go, I've just bought one more since, <laughs> darling. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get it in, but... <laughs> Perhaps those who don't know, the Vimeo auctions are run by a guy called Peter Forrest um, out of Devon, and uh, it's quite a good setup. I mean, you get the stuff sent to him, and he kind of vouches for it and writes documents to condition and stuff and does the sort of escrow deal. And they've been going a long time, haven't they? They were sort of before eBay, but they've sort of maintained, yeah. their, they've maintained their kind of um, status, even though... You know, eBay's obviously gone exploded since they started. So it's a really good, a really good place to look for really cool. And it's not just synths; it's all sorts of really interesting things. Like they have sort of valve counters, and you know, just all sorts of fascinating pieces of equipment of all kinds of, of descriptions, and, and sometimes just completely off the wall stuff. The thing I like about his auctions, and I don't know if he still runs them like this, but I hope he does, is that you've no idea when they're going to end. So you can't really snipe things, and nobody can really snipe you. So you have to sort of decide how much you want to put in, and then you put it in. And and then it it just seems fairer than the whole eBay thing, really. I don't... That is a good thing. Okay, well, there we go. That was our little trip down memory lane. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, that was sort of um, inspired by a topic on um, VintageSynth.org. I'll put the sh- link in the show notes. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-Series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk. Ah, the the, the meanderings of a chap called DX5 on uh, YouTube. He sort of posted a series of um, kind of what <laughs> famous synthesizer lead breaks i suppose would be a way to put it and i just wanted to play this one as well because i know mark might have something to say about it so let me just put it on next No, that to me that sounded that was quite a good rendition. What did that? How did yeah, that? Yeah, it was pretty close. Um, and presumably, um, you would know what that was originally done on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, the the height. It was a. No, it's a Jupiter Eight. It was a Jupiter Eight. Ah, well, he was JX Eight P. He was doing that on, I think. Did they? And it's a. It's actually a Jupiter Eight. I think it's a preset that Nick used for that. Really? As well, yeah. Well, maybe with a little tweak, but pretty much. Pretty much the, one of the standard sounds that comes in the synth. But that sound was one of my nightmares on, on the tours because Nick decided that he didn't want to take a Jupiter 8 out when right. I first started working with him because he didn't want to break it. Um, and trying to program that sound into anything else is just it's very hard. Really? It doesn't and sound that... I mean, it sounds like it's all in the pitch bend. It is all in the pitch bend. And ha- he has to have one of those, a keyboard with one of those sort of upright Roland pitch benders, otherwise he can't play it. His quote is, uh, I grew up in the 80s, so all my influences are mainly the 80s sounds. And you can say there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff on there. There's uh, a load of Depeche Mode renditions. Did any, any of you chaps, um, you know, try and learn particular synth lines, you know, because when we were sort of growing up and, and hearing synths for the first time, was there anything that you really tried to... Um, I tried to emulate and what was it Dave what about you I think the thing for me was always bass lines um, Stevie Wonder that he had a um, I think I can't was it Talking Book I think it was um, he had a track called Maybe A Baby which just had this incredibly growly funky bass line and I mean stuff like that always used to kind of get me going um, Funkadelic Feet Don't Fail Me Now all that kind of stuff I'd always try and rip off all those bass lines How about you Mark did you have any um, aspirations keyboard wise I did yeah and it was Blue Monday on an SH-101, because it was about the only thing you could program on it. <laughs> Maybe I Feel Love as well. 
I did it in the in the step sequence or on an SH101. Oh yeah, and blue, it did, blue didn't Monday it? as well because you could put rests in, so you could do the octaves and the rests. I forgot about that. That, that it had a how many, how many steps was it? Was it a sixteen step or was it? No, I think it was a hundred. But you could, but after you put in a certain number of steps, you could loop it. I don't know if a hundred included the rests as well. But then then you pressed a hold button and then it just played and looped round and round and round. And then but I'm actually a guitarist more than a keyboard player. So, so then you I could play to on loop. the top. Loop, loop that up and play over the top. Yeah, I still haven't perfected that either. The the Blue Monday style synth crossover with punk guitar. I'm still. still you want to listen? I tell that. you what you want to do. You want to listen to some more Zig Zig Sputnik? That'll get you there. I, yeah, I like Zig Zig Sputnik because it's well bizarrely. But <laughs> ah, and Rich Hilton. How about you? Do you, I mean, because you're quite an accomplished musician. Was there anything that you aimed for? I suppose if you kind of started messing with synths in '72, you probably would have been perhaps um, looking at, at, at some of the more complex and uh, progressive synthesizer uses. Well, there there may have been a day where getting the sound that played the solo in Lucky Man interested me, but by the time I was actually playing them on any kind of regular basis, I was driven by guys like Jan Hammer and the late great Joe Zawinul. So um, it was more a question of guys who brought what I thought was stunning keyboard technique to this medium and brought with it a, a unique sensibility for timbre. That's a pretty, that's a pretty high bar to aim the, to set yourself. And wh- what, what was the first time you kind of thought, yeah, I nailed that. I don't know how often that day comes. I yeah. don't know. I tend to be my own worst critic in that way, but, uh, I, I've nailed a few things. I don't remember exactly when the first one I nailed was, but, uh, and I practice, I practice nearly every day and I don't expect to ever catch those guys. And what about you, non Eric? I mean, I guess if you're kind of in the, the 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 sort of punk new wave thing, then it would have been more about a sound and an atmosphere than perhaps um, kind of any kind of virtuosity. Yeah, yeah I think uh, at the beginning we were really trying to uh, do what the German band called DA Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft were doing. They had this very uh, undergroundy, very strange sequences all done on the MS20 with heavy drums and German vocals, and basically we were just trying to do weird sequences on the on the um, SQ10 and the MS20, and didn't bother about melodies or synth lines. Were they are they DAF? Is that how I would have known about? Yeah, them? yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah definitely. Absolutely. I like SBK the- as well. SBK were very industrial, and they uh, I sort of discovered them through John Peel, and they had a record called Lycanshry, which means death cry. And it was uh, lots of sort of Simmons-y-sounding drum sequences and lots of <sighs> crashing and banging and, and screaming. And so, Mark, you probably heard a couple of my tracks at the beginning of the 80s on John Peel's music because they used to play some of the stuff. Oh, go on. Yeah, I probably did. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That was one of your. That was your podcast introduction, wasn't it? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> you're not. You're not actually editing one while we're trying to do this, are you? Oh no, no. I'm just trying. I thought I could sneak in a little advertisement. <laughs> That's musotalk.de, folks. I'm not quite sure, but Mark. Mark said yes. Save a player. You sound like you pretty much nailed it. So well done, DX5 um, from Spain. SonicState.com. Were you, were you just did that bring tears to your eyes you nearly electrocuted yourself <laughs> it's a really bizarre concept actually because it's a, a chap called um, Masami Takuchi who I think I've got this he's a Japanese theremist who invented something called the Matriomin in 1999 which is a theremin built into a Russian wooden doll and they call it a Matryoshka and they kind of get together um, sort of groups of people and they um, kind of perform ensemble style and it's just a really surreal thing but that whole the beginning of that where they're sort of where they slide up to the first note is just an incredible like this massive detuned oscillator with around sort of 60 oscillators quite an amazing sound and i just thought did anyone care to comment on that i i uh, had always thought uh it would be cute to make a doll called uma theremin and have different parts of the doll reflect different <laughs> kinds of theremin behavior as you came closer to it 
Wow. And so they've sort of taken that to a, to a traditional Russian wooden doll, and that's a beautiful thing as well. But uh, whenever I hear one of these kinds of things, it reminds me of something. Uh, there was an album somewhere in the 70s called the, by a group that called itself the Temple City Kazoo Orchestra, where you had like, a big ensemble of guys with kazoos in their mouths doing hits like Whole Lot of Love and you know, Do You Think I'm Sexy and stuff like that. It was, it was hilarious. And uh, whenever I see like a, a bunch of people playing in unison or, say, two-part in this thing um, <laughs> on an instrument of variable pitch, I once saw uh, a banjo festival where about 50 guys with harmonicas got up and played at the same time. And it sounded like uh, what Zappa once called a six-foot pile of AM radios, each tuned to a different station. I thought this was rather... I thought this thing was really amusing. I, I quite got... There was something about it that, that kind of when they, when they tried to... When they all had to reach for the same high note, so there was an incredibly long and sort of different rate at slide, but they all got to the same note roughly about the same time. It's just sort of, sort of really brilliant sonic texture i thought it was kind of quite emotional in a sort of strange kind of way but uh, maybe that was just me dave what did you think about it it reminded me of something um in fact first of all that big slide is quite cool because you can almost replicate that on a oberheim particularly the ob8 and whatnot because they're effectively kind of eight cents in one so when you hit a bottom note and then hit a higher note with a load of portamento added everything glides at a different time that's one of my favorite ob kind of idiosyncratic effects um but it did remind me of that monosynth ensemble which i still think was one of the best gigs that i've ever ever been to oh well the one in bath at the music festival yeah and i i like those kind of oddities for the uh, synth ensemble those who didn't know it was uh, adrian utley from porter's head will gregory from uh golf rap uh, Simon Clark, who played with Tears of Fears and all sorts of other people. Um, Bella, I forget her surname, uh, but she's a, a virtuoso keyboard player who does an awful lot of kind of major TV theme tunes in the UK. Um, Django, what's his face? Django Bates. Yes. Yeah, who's, uh, and they basically all got together and they performed a couple of classical pieces and also uh, a couple of sort of contemporary compositions uh, um, just with a bunch of monosynths. So a few Moogs, uh, well, quite a few Moogs actually. And what, what else was there? I'm trying to remember that. Um, someone have so, an MS-20. Monopoly was there, I think, was there? Yeah, and those had the Polyvox. And a Polyvox, yeah. So there was a kind of, there was a bunch of, of synths and, the, uh, and it was really quite good, actually. It was amazing. And I think that's actually, was that the first time me and you met outside of um, a, a pub? Probably, yes. <laughs> I, think, I think it might be. We have, we did, fortunately, don't worry, folks, we did actually end up going to a pub or at least the hotel bar. But, uh, but, uh, but, but I just want to say it's an idea that I've wanted to rip off for year, well, ever since I saw it. So if there's anybody out there who fancy, fancies forming a monosynth ensemble, and we can go and do all the various festivals and stuff like that, contact me. Right. Okay, there's a challenge. I'll do it if we can call it Django What's-His-Name. I think Uma, Uma Theremin is probably the best ever. <laughs> I think that's yeah, that great. might be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Uma Theremin. Has, uh, has anyone tried to play a theremin? Oh, yeah. Yes, I have. How I had hard to do, is that? I had to do part of my college electronic music project on one. My God, you must have an amazing ear. I mean, I, I, I bought one and it lasted about three weeks. I was just like, oh, what a cacophony. What I can't understand with this guy playing this theremin doll is if it's got a five-octave range. He's got a five-octave range in a fairly small space there, hasn't he? You can't be more than an arm's width apart, right? So his notes must be fairly difficult to pitch, I would have thought. Is, wait a minute. Is there a theremin of limited pitch range? I guess you can limit the pitch range. Yeah, but, I, mean, I, I thought think, you set that you with p- one knob and then you set the other thing with the other knob don't you but i think as a device it inherently goes from below what you can hear to above what you can hear i mean i I think you can to have a narrower pitch range than that and i'm sure this one has been pre-adjusted to match whatever size it is or something can you imagine being up at the being at the tuning up session for that ensemble the orchestra that that, those guys started with piano (laughs) yes i suppose so at least they've got something to aim for yeah i noticed they all had in-ear monitoring so it looked like some kind of bizarre um Japanese talent show clip, didn't it? Variety Lovely. performance for the emperor, perhaps. I don't know. It uh, strikes me as being really curious is that somebody should go through the pain of doing something on a theremin while the actual musical output and sound of the instrument is so boring. I, I ca- <laughs> it's great for one Hitchcock movie, but 
What else is there? I mean, it's a curiosity. It's great on trade shows. It's great on YouTube. But I, you know what? I'm kind of with you there. I mean, I, I, it always struck me that there isn't really much tonal variation. Although I think there are different. That you know, different ones have a slightly different sound, and depending on how you articulate. Smaller bird, bigger bird, sick bird. <laughs> it's a bit like playing a saw with a bow, though, isn't it? It's a very similar sound. So, with all of these kind of. Uh, location-sensitive tuned musical instruments, did anybody see on the circuit-bending challenge the guy putting his finger in his baby's ear? The baby with the Mohican. No. no. <laughs> I didn't get to that one. Oh, yes. Well, well, he had the body sensor, and he was just... The, the baby was touching the guitar, and he was sort of like... He just... was putting his finger on the baby's nose and everything, wasn't he? Well, this is the Create Digital Music, which is uh, a fabulous blog and kind of resource for just interesting electronica and other experimental notions where it comes to sort of musical performance. And um, they've created a circuit-bending challenge, which uh, the judges are Peter Kern, who's the guy uh, who basically runs Create Digital music as far as i understand uh get lofi.com's circuit master whoever he is and a guy called michael una they're the judges and it what it actually ended up with was a bunch of people sending in videos of their circuit bends i think they had to do it between two dates so the the the, 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 the form was something like you know they showed the date of when they were starting and then they showed they had to finish it so it was like a 24 or a 12 hour period i'm not entirely sure but there were some great videos and some great things up there but my particular favorite was the mini fervor furby by george lazenby leap not necessarily because of what it did because it's very similar to what you did with yours and we've we've heard that mark and i thought it was brilliant but because he was just such an interesting character i thought and uh, the other one was the uh the monster by a guy called l colin which was yes. a kind of guitar and he just seemed it was a really surreal setup it was like he was in a kind of student accommodation and he seemed really stressed out and he just happened to toss into the to his intro I'm so glad this this circuit bending challenge came about because here I am in the middle of South Korea, really stressed out, and that phrase just made me think, "What? What? I want to know about that. Forget the challenge. What's going on here?" Because it just seemed like such a surreal kind of place to be doing it from. You know? But um, there are some great ones. Uh, let's just go through uh, the mini furby we've talked about, the monster by Alcolin, which was actually quite good. Uh, something called a zapper, which was a bit not so great by a guy called Vanilla Tray. I don't know. Uh, and uh, this, this, I think what you were talking about, Mark, was the circuit bent toy guitar by Johan and Lucas Larsby, uh, which yeah. I've got a note here that says brilliant use of cute kid, which he, I think he got extra points. Well, his kid had a, his kid had a Mohican as well, which I thought was really cute. I like children with Mohican. I mix that. But um, the other one that I thought sounded really good, there's two that I thought sound really good. One was, um, there was a, a, a guy called Salamander Anagram, and he'd taken an mt35 and called it an M- a casio mt35 harbing harbing and i'm just going to play a bit of that because it's really awesome i don't think it necessarily translates so well um down the wire but it it sounded it was sort of Leaping along there nicely as a little, and, and it just goes completely bonkers. He's just sort of soldered a, a games joystick on it, and it just seemed to be. I just enjoyed that one. And the other one was the um, the saxophone from a guy called Finn, which sounded brilliant. It seemed to have all this jazz riffing. Which I, I'm going to play that because it's quite. Um, that sounded a bit like Ted Milton from Blur, I thought, um, if anyone knows that. It's a, a very obscure <laughs> reference. But uh, it's, what a great idea. And, what a, and it seemed to have brought out all sorts of people from out of the woodwork. And uh, I just wonder if anybody else had had any favourites, had a chance to look at it and what they thought. My favourite was El Colleen, the blonde dude in glasses, who was playing that guitar. I liked it that at the beginning. He just seems like this really dry, sort of geeky kind of dude who's just, he seems to be talking about absolutely everything apart from the subject in hand all this stuff and then he picks this guitar up and does this incredible performance on it and there was a bit in the middle that sounded like purple haze now i don't know if that's because the samples in the guitar actually had that riff in or because he was somehow bending it into that riff but it was it was quite incredible the transformation from sort of flat geeky kind of chat you really to, like, felt it didn't he was really physically <laughs> it was kind of a visceral performance from him i thought and i think you should get extra bonus points for that uh, they haven't announced the winner yet uh, anybody else sax one the sax one i i'm yep. afraid uh, that clip i played probably wasn't the best the beginning part there was much more sort of mellifluous jazzy sort of stuff that then get it ended up going into this sort of cut up 
and there's uh, some some fairly bonkers stuff. I didn't see all of them. I saw about three or four pages worth. Uh, I liked the guy. I liked Colin there in Korea. That was pretty funny, and I agree with Mark about the transformation when he begins performing is hilarious. And uh, there's you know the guy with the, his finger in his kid's ear was was quite entertaining. And that was really yeah. funny because he just started laughing, and the kids obviously really enjoyed it. I think he had must have had some sort of contact sensor he put on the neck. And so wherever he touched his kid, you know, if it was closer to his hand or further away, the resistance changed the sound and it made for lots of giggles. But I obviously uh, only working with low voltage stuff, because obviously that could have been just a terrible, terrible um, disaster. You really think he wired up the kid, huh? You can do you can do electrical high voltage, low ampage stuff as long as you keep hold of the person you're running the voltage through actually i think i'll give it a miss if you, uh, if you put your if you if you hold on to them tight and then switch the voltage on that's fine you get the voltage spinning around between you and you can feel it like a weird tingle on your skin but if you take your hand away from the person while the voltage is switched on you get sparks coming between you and the person that hurts <laughs> I, as long as you're connected before okay. you switch it on, it's quite good fun. Mark, I think you should stop now. Social services are probably on their way to your house. <laughs> I, think th- I think we have to talk to the think planning and was, parenting division of uh, sonicstate.com. I was, defi- no, I was talking about adult playtime, nothing yes. to do with children. <laughs> adult playtime and high voltage and sparks. I'm, yeah. I am, I'm beginning to form a mental image. Google it. Google it. Google it. <laughs> Preferably with some sort of Tesla coil action in there as well. <laughs> At sonicstate.com. Yes, a video coming soon. I really, I really enjoyed that. There was some great stuff. And uh, they're going to be announcing the winners fairly soon. So it's one to watch. Get over to Create Digital Music and keep an eye out for who's going to win the Circuit Bench Challenge. Circuit Bent Challenge. It's a really good piece of fun and uh, a great idea. <laughs> The Gracenote musical map is, uh, well, the Gracenote database, as we know, it's a quite contentious um, resource, actually, because they seem, that it's almost, they've been asked, you know, how come they're the keepers of all this information? Um, but basically, the Gracenote database is what your iTunes or fa- fairly much anything that you feed a CD in and goes off with the, with the IRS, what's it called? ISRC code? I think that's what it's called. It goes off and queries a database online gets the track listing and the title and the artwork and everything from this Gracenote database. And what they've got is a, a flash application, a map of the world, where you can click on various sort of continents and subcontinents and find out what the top 10 database queries are at any given point, and then also what the top 10 albums are. Let's give everybody a different country and we can compare the results, because I think it'll be an interesting experiment, because I, I, maybe I was just... Um, so if everybody picks a different continent, say, Rich, how about you take Africa? Alrighty. Hans, you take uh, South America. Sorry, I'm already in Poland. Ah, you can, you take Europe then. Mark, you can take um, South America, if that's all right. Dave, how about you go for Oceania? Cool. I've gone for Ecuador. Though. All right. Now, um, when everybody's got their top 10, when everybody's got the top 10 listed, uh, we'll, we'll ask what the top 10 are from each of you, and we'll just see what sort of similarities there are, because I was very surprised by this, and I just think it might be an interesting experiment. Okay, so Mark, where are you? What country are you in? Well, I'm in Ecuador. Okay, and? And? My number one artist is Ricardo Arjona. My number two is The Beatles. Number three is something called Mana. Number four, Soda Stereo. Number five, Alejandro Sanz. Number six, Aerosmith. Number seven, Pink Floyd. Number eight, Mark Antony. Nine is Alejandro Fernandez. And number ten is Shakira. Okay, in Kenya... Uh, Celine Dion. Ah, uh, bless her. Westlife, Mar- Mariah Carey, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Neil Diamond, Enrique Iglesias, <laughs> Kenny G. No! <laughs> Who'd have thought? In Kenya. I'm sure, that's not Kenya G. Oh. <laughs> maybe, it's a tri- oh. maybe it's a tribute band. <laughs> then you've got Michael Learns to Rock and then Sam Cooke. Wow. Go figure. Uh, non Eric. Yeah. Let yes. me guess. You're in Poland, right? I'm. I'm going to think of a sort of. Let's think of a stereotypical uh, uh, Polish kind of guy. Might well be into heavy metal. Does that figure in your chart at all? Yeah, very well. Uh, well, it's Linkin Park, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Zizm, probably a Polish band. Yeah. System of a Down, Versa, Nirvana, Nelly Furtado. Oster oh. is probably a, I don't know, it's probably a soundtrack thing. And Happy, Happy SRD, 
Never heard of that. A lot of stuff, especially in the albums, I've never heard of. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, because that was kind of encouraging. And Dave, have I asked you yet? No. Um, descending order. I'm in New Zealand. I've, I've only got New Zealand and Australia in Oceania. A lovely country, I've heard. Uh, yeah, glorious. Um, descending order. Coldplay, Metallica, The Beatles, Eminem, Linkin Park, Pink Floyd, Guns N' Roses, U2, Foo Fighters, and Red Hot Chili Peppers at number one. Ew. Don't what? like that band. Well, that... They feature all over the place, don't they? Yeah, and that was one of the things that I got. I mean, it's, just, it's it. you'd think there would be more variation is kind of what I was getting at. I mean, but from where I was looking, um, we ended up with kind of just the Beatles, <clears throat> Metallica, and Celine Dion. Well, I'd say and Chili Peppers were probably the biggest uh, biggest features throughout the world. So it just, it's quite an interesting gauge. I'm not sure that it's necessarily strictly a- accurate because obviously a lot of these countries might not be have a lot of people buying online in them. And this is where this comes from. It's people who are online who are feeding CDs in or buying CDs and having their GraceNote database um, queried. Either that or it might actually just illustrate how much those artists are pirated. Possibly, yeah. But it's, like I, mean, I, think the re- I think the reason why GraceNote are owners of this information is because probably in the early 90s there used to be an organisation called CDDB, didn't there? Yeah. I Every think- time you put a computer into a... a CD into a computer connected to the internet, you had a chance to name all of the tracks on that album, and then you uploaded that information to the CDDB database. And as far as I know, GraceNote bought that database in about 2000, 1999 or 2000. So all these people had put all this, you know, the, kind of the whole globe had put all this hard work into creating source, this database, yeah. and then somebody sold it, which I'm not sure is ethical it's not i think i think you've got about the gist of it actually i think that sounds about right yeah. um, were there any surprises in there for anybody rich how was how was um how was uh, um, i've just moved uh to a different part of the world and i'm quite surprised to learn that richard claterman is more popular <laughs> in vietnam than lincoln park or madonna now that is just weird but i'd really like to know on what numbers these are based because if you could imagine somebody like vietnam how many queries would there be in, uh, for a snapshot of this chart? And how, how, what's the granularity like? You know? So it's quite hard. You, know, you, ima- you imagine thousands and thousands of them, in which case it would be quite extraordinary. But it could just as easily be 10. And it could be one of those 10 no. could just be feeding the entire Richard Claydeman back catalogue into their computer. So that's why he's so popular. You know what I mean? It's, it's, not a, it's difficult to know exactly. Right. Well, if I, under- if I understand what these people do, whenever you, say, buy something on iTunes, for example... The iTunes software will go look at a database to see what the song titles are of the thing you've just bought. And from that, I would think they're, uh, I would think they're accruing this data based on the way people are accessing it from a particular area. So I, I, I don't know if it, whether it's you know, 1,000 or 100,000 people in Vietnam. But it, uh, Richard Clayderman, though, is still a, that's a pretty kind of obscure right. and, <laughs> and left field left field whichever way you look at it richard claderman not everybody might know who he is he's a sort of he used to tv advertise a lot in the uk i think he's is he american or is he french or is he just english i can't remember. Uh, i don't know that he's a pop pianist he, he's a pop pianist almost like a postmodern liberace thing that's right and all his videos are him the piano is very highly polished there's lots of um, sort of vaseline on the lens it's all very soft focus and there's him sort of tossing his golden okay. locks along with you know, some inane melody, basically. Might be a candelabra involved. There could be, couldn't there? (laughs) I'd like to think so. It would complete the picture for me. Will you be visiting again? Do you think you'll be able to give this up? It could be quite an addictive um, resource. Yeah, but uh, as you pointed out, the problem is uh, what is it actually based on and what what relevance does it have? But it's maybe this sort of stuff is more relevant than the, uh, the average charts you know, the top 20, because um, they are not relevant any longer. That's true. Well, and that- I think I would, I would really like to see a chart of the, um, of the uh, BitTorrent queries or the Nutella queries and just find out which, um, how, how, uh, how many songs are shared by different artists or how many uh, downloads they have. I think that would be really interesting. That would interest me, you know, to see... I think that would interest the RIAA as well, unfortunately. I don't know that it would, though, because if I ever download anything, it's only because I want to see what it sounds like, and once I've, you know, things I download, I don't really listen to. (laughs) That may not be a typical experience. 
I, what I'm trying to say is that people will download a lot more stuff than they'll listen to. And you get people that will generate or create a, a huge music library just because they can, not because they want to listen to it. So all these mm. sort of high school kids that are doing that have an iPod jammed with like 50,000 tunes because it's a talking point at school of, look how many artists I've collected. It's more mm. like... Football cards or something. Collecting yeah. data. Yeah, exactly. They're not all, they're not okay. all interested in listening to the music. I mean, people who are interested in listening to music are more likely to buy it, I think. I really like the idea of every time someone goes on holiday to somewhere where, you know, perhaps the the online community isn't as as large as one would think, you just take a little stack of albums and you just feed them continuously into your iTunes, (laughs) just for a joke, you know, at the hotel at night, just take it in. And so if we can influence the charts in some of these more obscure countries and just kind of say, get, let's see if we could get somebody really unlikely to the top of the charts of of, of how this works, you know, saying, if anyone's going to Vietnam, maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe somebody's got, uh, as a joke, they've decided to try and get Richard Clayderman to top of the top of the uh, Grace Note chart <laughs> in Vietnam, and they're just feeding it all in. Do you guys actually know a new website called Seekpod? S-E-E-Q-P-O-D dot com. It's really great because it's like, uh, they su- it's just a search engine, but it generates, if you want to, you, from the searches, you can generate your playlist. So you're basically, uh, it's a, like an on, on, online uh, jukebox, iTunes. Okay. Um, do you, uh, does it make suggestions? Does it work in a sort of uh, holistic sense, or is it actually just purely tag-based? No, it's, just, uh, you ser- it's, like a, it's like a Google, but it's a playable search. They call it Seekpot Playable Search. And you just type in Madonna, and then you get a huge list um, of all the Madonna tracks, and you can drag them into an audio online audio player, like a playlist, and off you go. Oh, I wonder if that would work oh, with my uh, with my fabulous um, Rock You Sandbridge radio, and I could create some um, radio stations out of that. That'd be an interesting concept. Is your Rock You Sandbridge radio Wi-Fi? Yes, only it doesn't right. have a wired connection at all. Okay, I I forgot to ask you that the other day. Now, last uh, last, can I? Talk about something that I talked about last week. I don't see why not. Which was last week. I was. I said that I was going to go and spend 150 of my hard-earned pounds on um, on Digi Design Mbox Mini, didn't oh, I? Oh yeah, yeah. Which you can't get yet. Can't you? Okay. Well, I changed my mind anyway, and I bought the Logic Audio Pro 8 upgrade. Woo! I've still got that. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't fed it onto the computer yet. Oh, it's very impressive. Have you been using Actually, it then? I have been using it. Yes, it's not. I mean, there's, it's uh, it's pretty much like Dave said. There's not really anything new in there, but the way it's laid out is definitely speeding up my workflow, and, and it definitely makes it easier to do things. Uh, <coughs> you know, like things that I do regularly, I'm finding quicker ways of doing them and stuff. And I like the layout. I like the way they put it together. But like Hans said, the fact that it still only has 127 increments in the in the faders, yeah. uh, levels of faders, it's just ridiculous. And, and not only, Mark, is that ridiculous because it shows me that there's still some old Atari code uh, from the good old MIDI uh, mixer days. But you know what is really, really bad is that I've got all the old bugs as well. There's a couple of overload bu- bugs in the audio engine that actually overload a song. And I know a couple of people who use Logic, and they all know this bug, is when you have a com- some kind of an overload situation, it somehow gets written into the song, and the song is kind of damaged. You, have you seen that bug? Mm, yes, I think I have. Yeah, and this one is still also the old, in the new version. And it's been in but 7 th- forever, and it's weird. But you're talking about old code. I was doing something which made it go into a busy state the other day, and instead of getting the um, the Macintosh OS X busy Beach icon, which death. is that spinning rainbow thing, I got a little black and white spinning disc, which harks back to about System 6 or something. So, <laughs> so I was looking at that, and I was thinking, hang on a minute, if this is supposed to have been rewritten from the ground up, what's that doing? In it's an Easter egg. It's an Easter egg. It's a- this hasn't been rewritten. It's, it's new clothes for an old king. As we would yeah, say. They've, re- yeah. they've re-skinned it and laid it out better. I guess. So, Mark, does that mean that you've actually um, you can you can beat your um, songwriting record because you you've tried to kind of cut it down to what was it? What was the last thing? Was it forty-five minutes or something? Are you kind of <laughs> yeah, something like that? Thirty minutes now. 
I don't know. I'll have to set myself a challenge, won't I? I've been trying to cross. Um, been trying to cross old school house with uh, with sort of modern rock in the last couple of days, and that's coming. And that's becoming quite successful, actually. I've got this sound that sounds like a cross between you two and Steve Silk Hurley at the mm-hmm. moment, which is quite interesting. Well, I was listening to you two on my Rocky Sandbridge radio this morning, actually. Achtung Baby, which I think was recorded at Hansa in Berlin, was it not, non Eric? Yeah, 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 Hansa Studio. Yeah, great, great, great record, actually, that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But anyway, um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this week, too. It's nice to be back on track. We've done two in a row, back from a break, and uh, we've been going for about an hour, so I think we can probably safely say that's a wrap. So thank yeah. you very much. Mark, it sounds like the uh, Night Garden was uh, was. It was very successful. Yeah, he's still watching it. I don't know if you noticed that I disappeared for a little while in the middle of that because he'd lost his trousers. I don't know how. <laughs> what? <laughs> but they're back on now and he's still watching it. So no doubt. No doubt. Are you sure he's not online uh, gambling? <laughs> oh! Oh, hang on a minute. Where's my credit card? Uh, yeah, wait. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much, Mark, and your son for um, making it possible this week. You're welcome. And also, Mr. Dave Spears from g4software.com. New website, thank- new new plugin. Go there. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, non Eric from musotalk.de, who will be bringing you a vodcast um, on the virtual string machine um, almost instantaneously, no doubt. You're welcome. Bye bye. And also, Mr. Rich Hilton uh, from Connecticut, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Thank you very much for joining us, and I hope your knee um, is better very, very soon. Feels better already. Uh, Thanks a lot. Have a great time. And a happy birthday. Yeah, and a very happy oh, yeah, birthday happy for birth- tomorrow. Thank you, gentlemen. Hope you have a great day and you can spend the whole day, I don't know, what, whatever it is you like to do on your birthday, doing that. And remember, folks, comments are always welcome. We'll be happy to read them out or play them or however they arrive. Uh, you can email them at, to sonictalk at sonicstate.com. We can just take words or MP3s. Or if you've got Skype, uh, you can call us on Sonic Talk, the handle Sonic Talk. Oh, we've got an answer phone there. Just leave us a message. Uh, we've got Skype in numbers in the US for that. Uh, so dial 312-376-8089 if you're inside the US. Or if the UK is closer or you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. Remember to dial your country codes for those if you're outside either of those countries. That's US telephone number 312-376-8089, UK 0207-870-8616. Thanks for listening. Sonic State. Sonic State.